0: John chapter 9, the whole thing this morning. You can find that on page 895 in the Pew Bible. Welcome to Woodside Community Church, and of course, Happy Easter. If you are visiting with us today, we want to say a special welcome to you. Thank you for taking time out of your day to be with us. We are very, very glad that you are here. We want to be known here primarily for two things. Everything else should flow from these two things. Loving Jesus... And loving His Word, the Bible. The next few minutes will hopefully be a demonstration of that. As we look at the Bible and try to understand the Bible and hope to love the Bible. As it is the means through which we look at Jesus and try to understand Jesus and hope to love Jesus. And what a great day that we get to do that uh, together. Easter. Uh, we have bunnies and bonnets. We have chicks and candy. That's what this whole thing Is about right. You, you guys all know that I'm a bit of a holiday Scrooge, but even I got in the spirit. I rocked my hideous pastel, pastel, eastery color tie today. Um, But what really is this Easter thing that we've so commercialized and sentimentalized? Maybe it's something more than we think that it is. How do you respond to Easter? What sort of reaction does this day tend to create in you? I was struck this week reading the end of the Gospel of Mark. It's an early record of the first Easter. Whatever it is that's happening exactly, here's the very first response to the very first realization of what had really happened. The very last verse of the book of Mark says this, And they, the women, went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. Trembling and astonishment had seized them. Is that your response to the events of Easter? I don't think that's many of our responses to the events of Easter. Why is that their response? Trembling and astonishment. Well, it must be because of what has happened and who it has happened to. It's that who that we want to focus on this morning. Who really is this Christ and what really is an appropriate response to him? All I want to do this morning is to consider Christ with you this Easter. We believe something quite crazy, quite crazy, something that that Christ claims. And he claims that how you respond to him He claims that what you do with Jesus Christ is the most important question of your life. He claims that the whole of your life, an eternal life, hinges and hangs entirely on what you do with this Jesus Christ. That's pretty crazy. Unless it's true. But you have to at least consider the claims of this Christ. No one like him has ever lived No one else has ever come close to having the impact on history or humanity as this man, and he did it in only about three years of active public life. How is that? How was the whole world transformed by this one Jewish man tucked away in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago? And why are so many people right now, 2,000 years later, loving him, worshiping him, seeking to orient their entire lives around Him. That's pretty crazy, unless it's true. So let's read, and maybe we'll start to see. What I want you to do this morning as I read uh, John chapter 9 is I want you to pay particular attention to the picture this story paints of this Christ. I want you to see how this great display of power comes together with this great display of kindness. All of it followed up by this absolute claim of divinity and centrality. This is a story about sight. A story about seeing. You know the phrase, seeing is believing. That is somewhat true, rightly understood. But this morning, I want us to flip that. And I want us to see that believing is seeing. Jesus is going to ask us in verse 35, Do you believe in the Son of Man? That's the question that I want to ask you to consider today. And so who is this Son of Man and why should you believe in Him? Three headings for you to help and structure our time. And you're welcome. They rhyme. I nailed it this week. Uh, to consider Christ this morning, let us consider the light, the fight, and then the sight. We're going to look at the light. We're going to see their fight. And we're going to close by considering the man's sight. Let's read. We're trying something different this morning. This is not my forte, uh, so bear with me. But we're going to try to preach the whole of John chapter 9. That means I'm going to read for you the whole of John chapter 9 first. And what I want you to consider as I'm reading this. What if this is true? What if this actually happened? And this Jesus actually did This. So pay attention. This is what Easter is ultimately about. This is what God wants to say to you today. John chapter 9, verse 1. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who uh, see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Amen. If you would bow with me. Uh, Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your living and active word. We thank you for your word that you have promised, does not and will not return to you void. Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that He is my only hope and help. And I pray now that You would help the preaching of Your Word. I pray that You would help the hearing of Your Word. We ask that You would show us Christ. Give us eyes to see. Grant us sight to see the light. And may we find life and rest and joy and peace in Him. Father, we do want to especially pray for anyone in here who does not know this Jesus Christ and who has not found life in Him. Father, may this be the day that you open their eyes and grant new life. Father, work now for your glory. Father, work now for our good. Do what I cannot do, Lord, and fix our hearts and our minds on Jesus Christ, who is light and life. We ask this all in His name. Amen. Amen. Point number one, quite simply, is the light. We began to look at this story last week. Let me try and briefly summarize verses 1 through 7 for you. I just said that this is a story of sight, but it is a story of sight because it is first a story of light, of the light. Jesus claims in verse 5, I am the light of the world. That's the big idea of this text. And remember, Jesus has just said also back in chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. This is an identity claim, a repeated identity claim. Jesus is telling us something about who he is and that something has to do with the sign, the symbol or the metaphor of light. And so he tells us who he is and here he shows us who he is. With the great claim Christ makes about how you should and must respond to him, Jesus is kind enough to be very careful and very clear with us about who it is that he really claims to be. And so he shows us and he tells us. In healing this man born blind, Jesus is showing us much. First, we noted last time that the first thing we see in this story is Christ seeing This man born blind. Here as we celebrate the Passion Week, we see the great compassion of Christ. He sees this man in his great suffering. He is aware of this man's presence. And more than that, he is attentive to this man's needs. His great needs. The disciples, in verse 2, not so much. Uh, The disciples are a bit slow at times. They are a bit unkind at times, and that is speaking kindly. Um, but Christ is not, uh, Christ is never unkind. We see his compassion in that he even puts up with these disciples, that he is patient with these disciples, that he teaches these disciples. Right, so the picture that we're getting here, even at the very beginning of this Christ, is that he is very aware of the needs of his people, and that he is very patient. <laughs> with the problems and the stupidity of his people. Thank God for that. But the disciples, in verse 2, ask the thing that you're never supposed to ask when confronted with the great suffering of another. Well, who sinned? This man or his parents? That he was born blind. We would never be so callous as to voice such thoughts, but we all have such thoughts. We so often assume this sort of karmic connection between suffering and sin. Bad thing has happened, a bad thing must have been done. Do good things, get good things, do bad things, get bad things. Or when we sometimes so often think, well, what did I do to deserve this? We are assuming this same sort of karmic connection. But don't miss first that the Bible deals very realistically with the reality of great suffering. This world is filled with great suffering. Your life may be filled with great suffering. Why is that? That is one of the great questions of life. You have to have some sort of answer to that question to survive this life of suffering. A great question to ask yourself as you consider life, as you construct what you believe about life and reality, as you consider Christianity and other worldviews is this, which story better accounts for and better deals with the reality of pain and suffering and evil? What does it have to say to your pain and your suffering and your experience of evil? The ascendant and prevalent view today, entirely materialistic, entirely physical, offers you no hope and no help in the face of very real suffering. It doesn't even have categories or explanations for evil. It has no resources to even account for its existence. All the pain and suffering that we see in this world is just part and parcel of the random chance materialistic processes by which life has Developed. It's not evil. It just is. So there is no meaning in your suffering. There is no purpose in your pain. There is no hope. It just is. So stop complaining. That's a miserable worldview. People often assume that evil is a problem for God, uh, for the goodness and existence of God. Uh, it is not. Uh, evil and good are far more of a problem for anything that proposes the lack of God. Right? Those categories cannot even Exist. But what I want you to see, just at the beginning of this short story, is just a little bit of a glimpse of how the Bible deals with suffering. And the first thing that we see is that God sees the suffering. What we see here is that God cares about the suffering. And the first demonstration of that is Christ's absolute rejection of the disciples' assumption that this man is suffering because he sinned. He's not. And so last week we took a long time to run through six sin and suffering statements. Six summary statements that kind of summarize the relationship uh, between sin and suffering. I won't walk through them all in detail. Let me just give them to you again just to get them back in your brain. Because This is one of the great questions of life. Right? Why is there suffering? What is its connection to sin? And so the first thing we saw is number one is that all suffering is a result of sin. Ultimately, all suffering is a result of sin. Suffering only exists because of sin. Sin brought death and death brought suffering. But be careful. Let's be clear. Number two, not all particular suffering is a result of personal sin. Jesus is clear here. You cannot assume that you are suffering because you sinned. Sometimes in a sin, cursed, suffering, suffused world, you just suffer. But we do know that, number three, some particular suffering is a result of personal sin. If you go out today and choose to murder someone, and then you go to jail for life and suffer greatly for it, you are obviously suffering as a result of your sin. So we cannot say that no suffering is a result of sin. Some is. But number four, here's the beginning of an answer to suffering. Here's where your hope starts to break through the darkness of the suffering. This is what Jesus says in verse three. All suffering is ultimately for God's glory. We'll try to unpack that further later on. Number four, good news. Number, I'm sorry. Number five, good news. All suffering works for good for the child of God. Number six, all suffering ends for the child of God. Those are our six brief summary statements. And it is those last three that we see out, we see playing out here in the healing of this man. The glory of God being demonstrated, uh, all suffering working for his good, this suffering ending uh, for this man. Jesus says he was born blind that the works of God might be displayed in him. Well, what work? This healing, this unbelievable display of power. Look at it again. This doesn't happen. This can't happen, but it happens. Look at how it happens. Look at verse 4. This is weird. Let's just be honest. This is weird. There's spit and there's mud and then there's the spit mud in the face. What, what's going on here? What is Jesus doing? Well, we see Jesus heal elsewhere without any sort of elaborate ritual. So this is, this is not magic mud or anything like that. No, often, Jesus just says, and it is so. He says, and it is so. Does that sound familiar? What are the first recorded words we have of God ever speaking? It's Genesis 1-3. And God said, let there be light... And there was light. God's first noun was light. Here is Christ claiming to be the light. And I think that that could be a hint as to what Jesus is doing here with all this spit and all this mud. Genesis 1 is about the creation of everything. Everything begins. John 1 is about the beginning of everything. The re-creation of everything. In Genesis 1, God creates life, and the first thing He says and does is, Let there be light, for light is life. In John chapter 1, the first thing we read about Jesus is that He is the Word of God, with God, God Himself. And the next thing we read is that all things were made through Him. Verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so here we have in our passage, Jesus cry out, I am the light of the world. And then we see him get down and dirty, get his hands dirty, taking dirt, forming something with that dirt and creating out of that dirt. This man was blind from birth. He had never seen. His eyes had never worked. This then is not a miracle of restoration. This is a miracle of Creation. I think, and again, I can't prove this. I don't know this for sure. There's all kinds of debate about this, so I'm speculating somewhat. But I think that in getting in the dirt and making the mud, right after declaring himself the light who is life, Jesus is echoing what we see in Genesis chapter 1, and then especially in Genesis chapter 2, when God forms man from the dust of the ground and breathes into his nostrils life. It's a beautiful, intimate picture of creation. God is the creator and giver of life. And here we see Jesus doing the exact same thing. He is the light. He has told us light is life. Now here he shows us as he gives this man his life for the very first time in giving him his sight for the very first time. As he sends him to the pool the man washes and comes back seeing sight because of the light remember we, we so tend to get the miracles of Jesus wrong he's not just performing parlor tricks here he's not just entertaining us or seeking to impress us with his magic tricks he's he's revealing himself to us he is signaling to us what this is about what he is about and what we see here is that he is all about life he has come for life he will tell us in the very next Chapter. We're going to spend a lot of time on this. John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's what Jesus is showing us here. And as life comes only from the God of life, Jesus is here claiming to himself be that God. To not just give life, but to be life itself. He is going to claim that you will find your life True life, abundant life, fulfilling, never failing life only in him. He is the light. And that is a claim that he is life. That is a claim that he is God. That is a claim that you find sight and life only in him. It's quite a claim. It's either a true claim or a false claim. And so now I want to turn and consider some of those responses, some of these responses to that claim. But first, I want you to consider your response to that claim. Again, first, consider your life. Jesus says, I came that you have, may have life abundantly. Is your life abundant, satisfied, restful, fulfilled, content? If not, why not? You trace, that, trace that back. What, what is the source? of that is your life is your heart is it peace or is it is it conflict because point number two i want us to look at the fight i want us to see how they respond to the light there are three general parts of this masterfully constructed story. Uh, verses 1 through 7, we've seen the meeting of Christ and the man and his healing. Then verses 8 through 34 are all about the meeting of the man with others, and their responding to him. And then in the third movement, verses 35 through 41, we have a second meeting of Christ and the man, with the result being an even bigger and better healing. But in this middle section, the man meets and interacts first with his neighbors, then with the Pharisees, then we see this strange interaction between the Pharisees and his parents, and then he meets and interacts with the Pharisees again. So there's kind of four separate movements within this one part. It'd be helpful to consider each response, but our time's fairly short, so I'll try to be brief and run through these four. Keep in mind, we're summarizing this whole section as the fight. Why is that? Well, because it rhymes, of course. (laughs) But also, as we'll see, because the right response is faith, thus we need an alliterative wrong response, which is going to be fight. But we're going to see each of these parties resist and reject the revelation that they've just received. Conflict characterizes these various responses to this glorious revelation. I titled our sermon two weeks ago, Revelation and Response. We've got the same thing here. What a revelation we've just seen. Now look at these responses. I want you to at least consider verses 1 through 7. Consider if they, if they actually happened. Consider that these people actually saw it. Consider then how absurd these responses seem in light of that. First, look at verses 13 through 18 where we meet the neighbors. All right, so these are people who seem to have known this Man. Uh, They, they knew the man born blind. And so they ask, well, isn't this him in verse eight? Isn't this the, the one who used to sit and beg? That's all you could do when you were blind back then. That was your entire life, your only hope, begging. Again, it was, it was misery. It wasn't a life at all. But now he is seeing, and now we are seeing them confused. In nine, some insist that it's him. Some insist that it's not. Humorously, the man has to keep insisting that, yes, he is the man. You would think that he would know uh, that. So then they ask the obvious question in verse 10. How? How were you healed? He tells them. He rehearses the story multiple times throughout this passage. They obviously then want to know the who of the how and where the man is who did such a thing. In verse 12, he says... I do not know. I love that. Note how little this man knows. That's going to be important. Note how willing he is uh, to admit how little he knows. There's going to be a great contrast between him and the Pharisees. And so then note that contrast beginning in verses 13 through 17. Uh, the Pharisees were sort of the, uh, the the priests they were the the religious rulers they were the authorities the, the persons with power. The people don 't know what to do with all this, and so they, they take the man to the experts, supposedly. well, the experts are going to prove to be no help. but look at verse fourteen because we learn some important information for the first time in verse fourteen where John tells us that this all happened, this this healing happened on the Sabbath. Trouble. We've already seen this problem before back in chapter 5. The Sabbath was the day of rest, the day of no work. The Sabbath was the day the Pharisees had worked really hard to make really difficult and burdensome. The Pharisees did a lot of work to make sure that no one did any work. And now here is Jesus healing. That's work. He's making mud. Ah, That's work. He's causing uh, trouble. That's work for them, at least. And so uh, they're angry about this. They're angry about the timing of this. The man again tells his story, and we we find some sort of division amongst the Pharisees in verse 16. Look at it. It's an interesting, logical debate. Some say, well, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But they're wrong about that, but the logic makes sense. If he's not keeping the Sabbath, he is sinning. That's a problem. He, he can't then be from God. So if he's not keeping the Sabbath, this, this makes sense. But we know that he is. But others say, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Also makes sense. How can a sinner do this amazingly, wonderfully good thing? But don't miss that here they're starting to admit Again, they've seen the sign. They've witnessed a miracle. They already know the man was blind. Who could do such a thing? How how could a man who was a sinner do a good and gracious deed like this? They've seen it. They've witnessed the miracle. How do you think that you would respond if you actually witnessed a miracle? And not the fake, stupid, ridiculous stuff like people falling over at Benny Hinn concerts or angel feathers falling from the sky at a Bethel church. Not all that dumb stuff, but like an actual miracle. How do you think you'd respond? I I know for me, you probably think that's what we often think. If I could just see, if I could just see what they saw, if I could just witness a miracle, then I'd be sure. Then I'd believe. But would you? Because they didn't. In verses 18 through 23, the Pharisees are so flummoxed. They're so desperate for an explanation or a solution to their conundrum that they then call in the man's parents. Verse 18, we read that the Jews did not yet believe until they're about to. They're desperate not to believe. And then we have this humorous yet tragic conversation back and forth between parents and in Pharisees, is this your once blind son? Yes, this is our once blind son. How does he now see? We don't know how he sees or who made him to see. Uh, he's of age. Talk to him. I get mean, they're terrified, understandably, but I don't know. It's not the not the best parental performance here, right? They don't they don't seem too particularly concerned for their son. They do seem quite concerned for their own social standing. We don't want to blame them too much. But, man, you really want them to kind of rally to the defense of their son. But, again, they they don't. But they proved no help to the Pharisees' cause, So they're dismissed. They weren't any help. So it's back to grilling the man in verses 24 through 34. There's no good cop, bad cop here. It's just, just bad cop. But But the man handles this. Masterfully. I think this is one of the best written and constructed parts and narratives in the whole gospel. This, this back and forth is is really brilliantly done here. I think this man turns out to be one of the best characters in the whole book. It's either the woman at the well in chapter four or the man born blind in chapter nine who should win the Oscar for best unnamed supporting character in John. Because look at this. This is, this guy, this guy's great. Verse 24 starts off with the Pharisees. Give glory to God. They don't actually want him to give glory to God. They want him to give glory to them. They want him to tell them what they want to hear as they reveal in the rest of the verse. Catch this. Catch what they say. This is important. Remember, he has already said, I do not know. Look at what they say. We know that this man is a sinner. That's important. That's one of the key distinctions that John is trying to draw out in this story of sight and blindness. Note that they say it twice, in 24 and in 29. We know. We know. And then even, look at the second half of verse 29. Even when they actually say we do not know where this man comes from, we know that they are lying. As we've just read back in 727, we know where this man comes from. They they know all about Jesus. Or at least they think that they know all about Jesus. And that is precisely the problem. The problem is not knowledge. Let's be very, very clear. Knowledge is good. Knowing is good. The problem is thinking that you know when you do not know. The problem is their pride their self-confidence in their own spiritual insight and understanding. We know. Be very careful with that. Be very careful with presuming that you know and that you've got it all figured out. The whole of our social media and cultural life could be wonderfully improved if we would all just stop assuming and presuming that we know. So much of the stupid back and forth online is rooted in in this idea, this self-confidence of what we know. Be careful. Pride is peril. Self-confidence is self-destruction. We know. But notice the man's response in verse 25. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. And that's the second time he's been willing to confess his ignorance. They are proud of their knowledge and proud to proclaim it. He is aware of his ignorance and has no problem admitting it. But he does know something. Rest of verse 25. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. This is a story of sight. And here he rightly confesses that he knows that which he could not not know. I have only known blindness my entire life. Now I know sight. I have only known darkness my entire life. Now I know light. Whatever all this other stuff is, I don't know, but I know this. But they insist. They persist. The fight continues. They ask again, how? How did this happen? How can this be? Verse 27. His response is brilliant. And it's hilarious. I've already told you multiple times. Why do you want to hear it again? Hey, maybe do you also want to become his disciples? That's wonderful sarcasm. Well used. I am a fan. They are not. They continue to resist that which is plain and clear. He continues to draw attention to the absurdity of their response to that which is plain and clear. He continues in verse 30. Amazing. This is more sarcasm. You do not know, yet he opened my eyes. In effect, he's saying, what more do you need to know? What else do you need to see? And then he masterfully drives this home, playing their own game, using their own language. Let me read again 31 through 33. Remember, they've said, we know, we know. Look at what he says in 31. We know, he's playing their game. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Blind, probably uneducated, probably poor, insignificant, powerless beggar. Brilliant. Hard to argue with. Look at the gloriously good thing that this man has done for me. How can you say that he is a sinful lawbreaker? How can you say he is not from God? And since they have no response to that, because there is no response to that, and they know that they have no response to that, they choose instead to ridicule him, rebuke him, and remove him. So what a a fight. What a back and forth. It seems that they have won. right? They're still in. He's out, but things are not always as they appear. This is their response to this revelation. In psychology, we we talk about the the fight or flight response to danger. This is the fight and flight response to, to danger. Christ is a danger to them. He is a danger to their entire system of man-made, constructed uh, religion. He is a danger to their perceived self-righteousness and their presumed goodness and sight. They have seen the sign. They have witnessed a supernatural work of God. And they have done anything and everything to try and deny or explain away what they have seen. But they cannot do it. There is a man born blind now he sees there is a man born blind now he sees and says that he sees because of this jesus christ they have seen that and yet still insist on denying that theirs is a stubborn willful determination not to see and believe they do not have an evidence problem the evidence is staring them in their blind eyes. The light has come, sight has been given, and they fight the light. They are so committed to their position, so resolved that nothing will change their mind. They refuse to see, and in putting the man out, they are taking flight from the light. They fight it, and they flee from it. Now here's the important question. Is what about you? What about me? What about all of us? And let me be clear for all of us as well. We do not have an evidence problem. You do not have an evidence problem. The evidence problem is always such a smokescreen. Evidence abounds. Just just look without the world and all its beautiful complexity screams the existence and glory of a good God. Just look within your, your conscience the guilt that you feel, the unfulfilled desire to be good and do good, the looking and longing for something bigger than you, something to live for, some glory proves that there is a God that has made you and made you for him and has made you to see. But in your sin, you have made yourself blind. In rejecting the light, you have embraced the darkness. Our problem is summed up in Romans 3. None as righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Catch that. We know. Paul says, no. No one understands. No one seeks for God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And this is why Romans 5 goes on to call all of us in our unrighteousness, ungodly, sinners, enemies of God. And there's the fight. John three nineteen. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That is all of us. That is me. That is all of us in our sin. This is what sin is and does. It is the willing rejection of the God of light and life. And it is thus then the willing acceptance of dark and death. It is just logic. You reject life, you get death. You reject light, you get dark. Sin is not breaking some rules. It's not doing a few bad things. It's not making a mistake. It's not missing the mark. Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is our attempt to dethrone God, to ungod God, to kill God. Sin says to the God of light and life and goodness and kindness and pleasure and joy. Sin says to him, "I do not want you. I hate you. You are not good. You are not God." Just like the Pharisees here, we fight against the light. Point number three, the sight. Verses 35 through 41. The last scene of the story. The reunion of the healed with the healer, the sight with the light. But, catch this, because this is the question. Has he yet been healed? Has he yet Scene. For you see, the way that many are increasingly presenting Christianity and preaching Christ today, even in, in many churches, you know, the story could honestly end at verse 7. Look at how great Jesus is. He's so nice. Look at how much he helps people. He gave this man physical sight. He helped the hurting. We should help people to the end. But that's not the end. John keeps writing. The story keeps going christ keeps working he is not done he has only just begun i said earlier we so get the miracles wrong and here's maybe the main way that we do it we focus on the miracles we emphasize the miracles we see the miracle and we stop at the miracle and in stopping there we miss the whole point Remember in John's gospel, Jesus isn't running around performing all these miracles. Look what I can do. In fact, John only records seven of them. We know that there were many more. But John very intentionally only gives us seven of them, and he never calls them miracles. He always and only calls them signs. Remember, the Pharisees even here, who could do such a sign, even in our passage? And signs signify. It's the same word. Signify. Signs are never the point. Signs point to the point. And so, if the restoring of physical sight to the man born blind is a sign, that then by definition tells us that the restoring of the physical sight to the man born blind is not the point. It is a pointer to the point. And Christ makes that very clear. Clear here at the conclusion and climax to this wonderful story. Here's the point. It doesn't end at verse 7. Verse 1, unasked, Christ comes to this man and heals this man. Verse 35, unsought, Christ seeks this man and speaks to this man. Do you believe in the Son of Man? That's the point of the story. That's the question. That's the question on which the whole of your life hinges, whether you like it or not. Here Jesus tells us more about who He is in identifying Himself as the Son of Man. We should take a whole semester to unpack that title. He takes it from the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 7. It's, it's chock full of meaning. But for our purposes, in Daniel, the Son of, the Man, the Son of Man is the one who has seen God... And thus, He is the one and the only one qualified to reveal God. And this is why John introduces us first to Christ as the Word of God. Words are revelation, right? We reveal ourselves to one another through our words. And words are relationship. We relate to one another through our words. Jesus is the Word of God. He is the one who reveals God to man and the one who relates God to man. And so in saying, do you believe in the Son of Man? He is saying and claiming to be the one and the only one who reveals the true and living God and who can bring us into relationship with the true and living God. He will make this claim explicitly coming up in chapter 14, verse 6. Maybe the most controversial claim of Christ in our current cultural moment. As he claims exclusivity for himself. No one has a problem with Jesus. Uh, People have a problem with the exclusive Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What a claim. Buddha, at the end of his life to his followers, said, Hey, kind of forget me, set me aside. I'm not the point. Follow the way. Jesus does the exact opposite. He says, me. I am the point. I am the way. I am the one around which all of this hinges and hangs. He makes the most exclusive claim he could possibly make. What is your response to this huge claim? Do you believe? In revealing Himself as the light of the world, Christ is claiming very clearly to be God Himself. By revealing Himself as the Son of Man, Christ is claiming to be the only one who can reveal God and relate us to God. For He is God Himself. Come in the flesh to help us. But that's the big question. That's the question that we just miss entirely if we get this story wrong. Why did He come? Plenty will say that He came to do some nice things. Things. He came to help to the, he came to help the poor. He came to give sight to the blind. Look at how nice Jesus is. He gives this man his physical sight. But did he? Is that why he came? Is that why he came here in this story? No. Because he comes back to the man in verse 35. He comes after the man and he doesn't come back and say, Hey man, just just wanted to check up on you. Can you see me all right? Like, how, how are your eyes? No, he says, do you believe in me? Why does he say that? He was blind. Now he can see good news. He's good to go now. Wrong. Don't miss the point. The physical sight is significant, significant only in what it points to. It is entirely insignificant by itself. For Christ did not come to this man to make the blind see. He came to this man to make the dead live. That's the point of the sign. In verse 35, the blind man who now sees still can't see. He's still blind. His physical sight has been restored, but his spiritual blindness remains. We see the scales falling off in the previous conversation. We see it coming. We see the Spirit obviously working in him, but it hasn't happened yet, and that's why Christ comes to him again, for that is why Christ has come. That is why Christ heals. Always, they are signs of the true healing that we all of us need. For as we just saw, we unrighteous, ungodly, sinner, enemies of God are dead in our trespasses and sins. For the wages of sin is death. Again, you reject the God of life. You get death. But what we see beautifully here, and here, here, is the compassion of Christ. His seeing this man in verse 1 and healing this man in verse 7 is nothing compared to this. Look at verse 36. The man is so close. He's so close. Who is he, sir? That I may believe in him. 37. Here it is. Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. There's the sight. I think that's when it happens. Here is the point. Here is the self-revelation of the son to this man. Here is the light now giving the sight, spiritual sight, which means he is giving this dead sinner life. And so look at the response. Here's the response. Lord, God, I believe. And he worshipped him. That's the point. Not physical sight as wonderful as that is. But physical sight only? Sight for a couple of decades and then? Death. You understand what our problem is, right? Like the problem and the only problem. Why our lives are so unfulfilling, unsatisfied, discontent, restless, and disturbed. Do you know why that is ultimately? It's because of death. Death is the great destroyer of everything. Death is the king of terrors. Death is the end that makes all that comes before it miserable and meaningless. And so blindness is not the problem of this text. Your health is not your problem. Your bad job is not your problem. Your relational situation is not your problem Death is your problem. And this isn't that complicated. But do you know what the only solution to death is? Life. Life is the only solution to death. And you know what today is? Easter. And you know what Easter is all about? It's all about life. There's nothing more relevant and important than this. I'm not an Easter and a Christmas Scrooge. Because I want to celebrate these things less, I am an Easter and Christmas Scrooge. But it's because I want to celebrate these things more. Because this is a, this is everything. The Pharisees were miserable in part because they had gotten the Sabbath entirely wrong. Jesus wasn't breaking the Sabbath. He was fulfilling the Sabbath. He was doing exactly what the Sabbath was for. The Sabbath is for healing and helping. The Sabbath is for resting and rejoicing. The wonderful work of worship. And God is so gracious and kind to us that he has given us 52 holidays. We love holidays. 52 times a year. Once, every single week, God has said to us, rest. Rejoice. Enjoy me. Again, maybe the problem is that we don't so much enjoy the thing that we should enjoy but what I want is that we we tend to only celebrate this resurrection thing or this birth thing on these one and two days of the year the point is no we're supposed to celebrate this every single Sunday of the year life we read it earlier Pastor Mike read it for us Luke he is not here but has risen that's life But, but what because risen means previously dead not in the tomb means he was in the tomb. Why? For this man, for John chapter nine, so that Jesus could heal this man born blind. Can you understand that? Right? Jesus, as God, can do anything that he wants. He can do anything that he wants to do. He can heal physical blindness, no problem. He speaks a word, healed. But I can be careful. We want to be careful here. Speaking, I think this is correct. But do you know what he, Jesus, as God, cannot do? He cannot ignore sin. He cannot sweep sin under the rug. For then he would not be just. Then he would not be God. Crimes must be punished. Wrongs must be made right. The debt must be paid. There must be justice. And here then is the glorious good news of the gospel. The righteous and just God that you and I rejected in our sin, sought to dethrone, ungod and kill. Something had to be done about that. The penalty for the greatest of crimes had to be paid. The wages of sin is death. The good news of the gospel is that the just God that must punish sin is the merciful God who takes that punishment himself in sending his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is that we sin. And God pays. The gospel is that we reject God. And God receives us. We run from him. And he runs after us. But to do that, the sin and the death had to be dealt with. And that's exactly why Christ has come. And exactly what Christ has done on that cross. This man can believe and live. Because in a few short months, Christ was going to suffer and die. Christ doesn't have to suffer and die to heal this man's physical blindness. Christ has to suffer and die to give this man new life. Do you believe this? I'm not asking, you to believe some stuff, you kind of like this Jesus idea. I think do you believe this? That he is the only solution to your death problem as the sacrifice for your sin? Because it is only here that you will find life in this Christ who gave his life to take your death. And it is only in coming to him, receiving him, believing in him, having faith in him that we can live. This is why everything hinges and hangs on him. This is why your response to him is the most important question in your life. You and I are sinners. I am a great and wretched sinner. And there is a righteous and holy God. And that sin must be answered for. But he is also a kind and merciful God. And he has sent his son to answer for that sin for us. And so he kindly and graciously invites and offers, believe in me and live. Easter was the worst and most wonderful week of the world. Why? Because life was dying. Capital L, life, was dying. But in rising, that life, the life, was defeating death. And so your death problem, the source of all your other problems, your death problem has been solved in Christ. And Christian, let me speak to you first. If you do believe this, what hope, what hope you have? What hope the resurrection of Jesus Christ provides for you, Christ is alive. He wins. The greatest and worst thing, death, already defeated. He cannot be stopped. His plans cannot be thwarted. Thus, if you are with Him and His plans are your plans, then you cannot be stopped and your plans cannot be thwarted. There is abundant life and rest and peace for your souls in realizing who Christ is and what He has done for you that you might live. Live. Always in light of the resurrection. We're pretty good at being people of the cross. We're not very good at being people of the resurrection. Live in light of the resurrection. But, I'll close with this. Don't miss the warning of verse 39. Jesus says this. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Do not make the mistake of the Pharisees. Do not persist in your willful, stubborn blindness. For There's clearly no cure for those who reject the only cure. that, That makes sense, right? Do not reject the Christ who is light and life, the sacrifice for sins and thus the only cure for your death problem. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Because he is the creator and sustainer of the world. And he is also the savior of the world in coming into that world to die for that world. He is what you are looking for. And he is alive. And here we see that he is all powerful and yet compassionate and kind. Come to him in faith and find rest for your souls. Come to the life and find life. Come to the light and find sight in Jesus Christ if you would bow with me let's close with a word of prayer Father my words are finished your word remains Father my words apart from your words are nothing Father your word is everything Father, I believe that in this word you reveal to us your precious son, Jesus Christ, who is light and life. Father, I believe that as we see in this story, our only hope is that this Christ comes to us and reveals himself to us while we were yet enemies, in the midst of our ungodliness and our sin. Father, what compassion and kindness that he comes to uh, a man like this and a man like me. We thank you for your great grace, Lord. Show us that great grace. Give us the eyes to see a sight of the glory of the gracious Christ. Give us a great love for this glorious and gracious Christ. And I ask and pray again that you would do the thing that only you can do. Is that you would give life, give life to dead hearts. Give sight to blind eyes. For those, Father, who you have graciously revealed yourself to, and yet we still continue to so struggle, comfort and encourage your saints, Lord. Comfort and encourage them with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Comfort and encourage them with his great love and compassion uh, for his uh, sinful, struggling, and uh, suffering sheep. We thank you for Jesus, Lord. We ask that you would show us Christ. We ask that you would draw us to him, and we ask this all in his name. Amen.